This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. On our last episode, we discussed a Minneapolis landmark that has disappeared from the city's skyline, the Weather Ball. Today, we're talking about prominent structures that continue to leave their mark on the city. Those structures are Riverside Plaza. These are distinctive high-rise buildings in Minneapolis's Cedar Riverside neighborhood, and they're easy to spot because of their colorful panels. In fact, thousands of people drive past Riverside Plaza every day on some of the region's busiest freeways, which sort of surround this neighborhood. But the real story here is about the buildings that don't exist. Because what is now known as Riverside Plaza was supposed to be just the beginning of a grand utopian plan to remake that entire neighborhood. That controversial dream for the area fell apart in the 1970s, leaving only the buildings we see today. Dave Feehan was one of the community activists that helped put an end to the reimagining of Cedar Riverside, and he wanted Curious Minnesota to tell the tale. The Star Tribune's Adelie Bergstrom is joining us today to talk about her story on that history. But first, here's Dave. I was hired by the Pillsbury Lake Neighborhood Services as their housing coordinator. So we were getting all kinds of calls from people, not only in the West Bank, but all over the South Side of Minneapolis, complaining about the lack of affordable housing and about the problems people were having with property owners, landlords, and so forth. In working with other community organizers, it became apparent that the project that was proposed in Cedar Riverside was going to demolish a lot of affordable housing, housing that was serving students and lower-income people, and was going to remove the um, historic character of a lot of the West Bank. So we thought this was something that uh, ought to be very carefully looked at. So working with community organizers from around the city and with the uh, people at HUD, we certainly found that uh, what we were suspecting was true and uh, that we thought we could find a way to uh, stop this project, which we thought was going to be bad for Minneapolis and bad for the community. Well, Adelie, thank you so much for joining us. So I'm so glad you wrote this history. I remember years ago looking at photos in our archives and seeing images, some of which are on this story of Gloria Siegel, who we're going to talk about in a moment, standing with these scale physical models, which we don't build anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> Architects, I, or maybe they do, but we don't see them as much anymore. And I made a mental note, Riverside Plaza, there's more to that building in that area than I know. I must know the history one day and here you've written it for us. So Absolutely. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for having me. So people are familiar with these. It is these buildings. We think of one building sometimes, which is the tallest one, the McKnight Tower. But this was supposed to be something larger, a part of a bigger vision. So give us sort of the top line. Like what was the goal of what we're about to talk about, this sort of development vision? Right. So the goal was to create a socioeconomically integrated and racially integrated community mm -hmm. uh, to 
renew Cedar Riverside, which was a neighborhood that was, you know, experiencing a significant amount of blight at the time. Mm-hmm. And as a way to revitalize that, they envisioned coming in and meeting the population where they were. So not trying to ship out people and bring new people in, but creating an entirely different physical neighborhood for mm-hmm. the existing group of people. And they envisioned a development that stretched basically across the entire neighborhood wow. of new towers of varying heights with Mm -hmm. uh, pedestrian sort of open spaces in between them. And they envisioned, you know, this sort of city within a city uh, in this neighborhood. And so we know Cedar Riverside today as a very sort of, well, East African immigrant neighborhood in particular, but it's been an immigrant neighborhood for a very long time, right? Yeah, it definitely started out that way, uh, you know, in the 1870s, starting uh, about that time, it was a large Scandinavian immigrant hub, people that were fresh off the boat from across the ocean, settled in Cedar Riverside and grew a community there. So Mm -hmm. it had its beginnings in that community Mm -hmm. uh, to the point that Cedar Avenue was called Snooze Boulevard at one point, uh, owing to the the amount of snuff that that people carried with them. Okay. So to put things into perspective, if we get to sort of the middle 20th century, the West Bank of the U of M campus does not exist yet. Does not exist. So if you were an investor back then and you could see the future, you might think, hey, there's about to be a lot of uh, university stuff over here. And and somebody did think that, so as we're going to talk about in a second. So Gloria Siegel sort of the star of this story. Who is Gloria Siegel? Yeah, so Gloria Siegel is a housewife living in St. Louis Park. Uh, she's married to a doctor who also works part-time at the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And they go in and talk to a business professor at the U of M in 1962 whose name is Keith Heller. And mm-hmm. they're looking for an investment opportunity. And he says, hey, you know, the university is in the process of starting to expand across the river over to the West Bank. And you should be looking for maybe some housing, you know, landlord opportunities here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing in Dinkytown. And so they ended up buying a single apartment building called University Court, and they had the idea to redevelop that into some newer buildings. And so Siegel and Heller sort of get, they form a partnership. Right. So they hired Heller to start to manage this building, and then they ended up forming this partnership and looking at buying more land in the neighborhood with the idea, you know, knowing that there's going to be this sort of population boom coming in with, you know, students at the university. So they start buying up all that land then? They did. A lot of it was pretty dilapidated housing on Mm -hmm. the land. So they ended up fixing those houses up, remortgaging them and using that to continue to buy land. Okay. And so suddenly they're like landlords to lots of people. They're like major landlords. That's right. You know, they came from both from sort of a service background and a social, you know, they were very interested in social welfare. Mm -hmm. And so they were really big on paying visits to their tenants. All kinds of people lived in that neighborhood, but they were definitely active in terms of, you know, being connected with their tenants. Okay. And just for the rest of the story, so we're talking about the Cedar Riverside Associates, CRA. Right. Right. This right. is the behemoth that will later become sort of under a lot of scrutiny. Uh. Right. Right. And that doesn't get formed for a few years, oh, but okay. that will be the organization that the two of them 
Oh, okay. Form. So the other sort of aspect to how this story develops is that the federal government is interested in planned communities, new towns. New towns. So we have a new town. We had one at this point, Jonathan, right? Right, right. So what is that? So Jonathan is out in Carver County. It's present-day Chaska, and it was basically a sort of wooded community of individual neighborhoods with a sort of town center in the middle, Mm -hmm. and it uh, had an extensive trail network and and uh, all kinds of interesting technology to connect people in different Mm -hmm. ways. And that was the brainchild of Henry McKnight, who was a senator, state senator at the time. Also uh, somebody with fairly deep pockets, being from the well-known McKnight family. And so that was his project. It was the first sort of federally fully funded Newtown program in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, And that was in the late 60s. So then McKnight gets linked up with Heller and Siegel. Yep. So eventually McKnight ends up buying out sort of the other landlord in Cedar Riverside. And then he joins forces with Heller and Siegel and they start working on this sort of grander plan Mm -hmm. to transform the neighborhood. And they were spurred on by architect Ralph Rapson, Mm -hmm. who was a modernist, you know, architect. He was head of the U's School of Architecture. He was also known for around here designing the Rarig Center at the U of M and also the original Guthrie Theater. Okay. And so he's the one that's helping develop what we see in these images. Now these this big plan these big complexes right and so and they had started out just with the idea of building one apartment and then a few sort of small walk up apartments and he encouraged them to keep thinking bigger. Okay. And so basically what ends up being part of the superlative or part of the unique part of this property today is that it was the first new town in town. Right. The town being Minneapolis, the second town. Right. The first town being what we now now know as Riverside Plaza. Right. The town in the town. Right. But the town was supposed to be a whole city, basically, of its own amenities. And that's not what really happened, but we're going to get to that in a second. And so, you know, they have this big plan. This is coming on the heels of, you know, Skid Row hadn't been that long before, you know, a decade or two decades. But Gloria Siegel is saying in 1970, like, this is something different kind of, or what is she saying? I mean, how are they different from what we saw happen to downtown Minneapolis? Right, right. Yeah. So planned communities up until that point had been largely at the edge of an urban area. And this was the first one that they planned in the middle of of a city as a way to address what the city saw as a blighted area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, downtown had gone through this urban renewal, uh, which frankly, up until the 1950s and 60s had been just term slum removal. Mm-hmm. And so the city comes in and clears uh, that northern edge of downtown uh, as part of the Gateway Project. And, you know, a lot of historic buildings ended up being parking lots. Gloria Siegel didn't want to do this that way. She did envision coming in and clearing much of the neighborhood, but she wanted to make sure that what was built in its place was built for the community that already existed there. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's different than downtown because you didn't have all these residential right. people. But this was a residential neighborhood right. with people living there. And it still seems like a tough sell, you know, like, hey, it's not going to be like that other thing because I want to keep you all around, but yeah. I am going to get rid of all these buildings. Yeah. And, <laughs> this, and the city had a vested interest in redoing this neighborhood as well. And, mm-hmm. and I think Gloria Siegel felt like, hey, they're going to do this no matter what. So right. let's find a way to do it so that the people that live here aren't 
pushed out mm-hmm. or, you know, affected. And let's create this vibrant sort of cultural community, right. diverse and arts focused and yeah. all of that. And the full plan. I mean, we're talking about 30,000 people, mm-hmm. 12,000 units. Yeah. That's a lot of housing. 12,500 units over 20 years. Right. Uh, so by, you know, 1991, they had envisioned 30 thousand people living in Cedar Riverside, which is like six times as many as were living there in the 60s. Okay. So let's talk about what did get built. I often think about one building, which is actually McKnight Tower, but there were 11 buildings as part of what was called Cedar Square West. Right. Is that right? That's right. It was like how many units approximately? Yeah, it was about 1,300 units, 1,300 apartments, and they ranged from sort of studio efficiency apartments all the way up to uh, several bedrooms, and they sort of started out on the low end in terms Mm -hmm. of amenities. There was a small number set aside that were what they called semi-luxury units, okay. which had, you know, carpeting and a few other right. amenities, plus one building that had some extra amenities uh-huh. for those people. And when did that open? So it opened in 1973, after a couple of years of construction. Okay. It was built... I sense an anniversary coming. It is, yeah. So <laughs> in early April, that's when the first... Um, Residents moved in, and so this April, that will be 50 years since that happened. And this was done with a $24 million federal guarantee from the federal government, from the uh, the Department of um, Housing and Urban Development. So it's a loan. So it's a loan. So the loan came from private investors and mm-hmm. and but but it was, it was backed. backed by the federal government got it that's okay. right and 24 million dollars just to put that in context is that's 189 million dollars today okay so it's a big project and then you know we're going to talk in a second about sort of the organized opposition but you know they're aiming for utopia here did they get exactly what they wanted when it all opens up i mean what do they find yeah. in some of the early sort of as people come and move in there At the beginning, half of the units were subsidized and half of them were not, Mm -hmm. and as part of this federal agreement. And they focused pretty heavily on getting those subsidized units fulfilled so that they could start sort of making some of their money back. So what that meant was that some of the lower-end buildings got filled up faster. They really had this vision for a very integrated in terms of the way that people were going to be mixed, all kinds of different people from all walks of life. Unfortunately, federal laws, the way the regulations worked at the time, that forced all of the sort of semi-luxury units into mm-hmm. one building. Oh, okay. So you've already got this sort of us versus them, you mm-hmm. know, let's put all of the fancier units in one building, and then they didn't succeed as much in filling up that building, and okay. so people were kind of like, hey, there were extra amenities in that building, like mm-hmm. a gym, a sauna, and they wouldn't let these people used those amenities and and they said, you know, why not? There's nobody in this building. Mm -hmm. So you already had this us versus them. They also had the idea of the developers, you know, to really make this a racially integrated community. And, you know, human nature means that sometimes it doesn't work out that way. And so you had people coming in and finding people that looked like them Mm -hmm. and asking which building those people lived in. And I want to live in that building, too. So there's some of that self-selection. Right. And a lot of people, it turned out, were going to be leaving soon. Right, right. So 40% of the residents in the first year were students, mm-hmm. which makes sense considering that you've got the U of M right there in Augsburg. In addition, though, 80% of all people in the building, according to a first-year survey, said that they only planned on staying for two years. Okay. So this was a place where people who were upwardly mobile could come uh, and sort of have that life in the city, especially younger people in their 20s and 30s. But the social norm at the time was still this idea that 
I'm going to get my place out in the suburbs, right. you know, later. And so this is just kind of a stepping stone to somewhere else. Okay. And that doesn't breed community very well. Sure. So meanwhile, this activism is brewing. The people who are opposed to this and are opposed to CRA, this is fresh off the Vietnam War. They are used to sort of uh, protests and organizing and activism. Right. And they are turning their sights on CRA, right? Right. There were people that were, you know, ensconced in the neighborhood, part of that fabric of the neighborhood, and they were already very interested and practiced in grassroots organizing. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, whether it was a reaction to the scale of the project, this idea of having a 39-story tower looming over your neighborhood. Which would be the third tallest building in Minnesota, yep. basically, at the yep. time. Yeah. After the IDS and the Fauché Tower, that wow. was it. Yeah. yeah. So Brand new IDS. So, yeah. Brand new. That's right. So there was an opposition to that. The people who were against it said, you know, the developers said this was a human-scale project, but we mm-hmm. don't see that. We see these hulking towers. We see towers that are closed off from the rest of Cedar River side, these elevated pedestrian plazas that don't connect to the street. You can't get up there. The overarching theme of the way that they responded to this was we don't want to see people who aren't in this neighborhood coming in and telling us Mm -hmm. how it should be done. They said, we're doing our own grassroots revitalization. Gloria Siegel, for her part, said, hey, you know, we have been in this neighborhood as landlords for a long time. They controlled a lot of the neighborhood at the Mm -hmm. time. And Gloria Siegel, who really believed in the arts and that community, was instrumental in bringing some of these organizations, Theater in the Round, Dudley Riggs, you know, Center Opera Company, to the neighborhood. And even though she envisioned sort of bulldozing everything in the end and starting fresh, I mean, they owned these existing buildings and, and mm-hmm. maintain them in the meantime. And brought, okay. there was a youth community, you know, so Gloria Siegel really saw herself as cultivating yeah. this community. And I think really was hurt by the idea that, right. you know, they were saying you're just like every other developer. Okay. So that's sort of the war of words. And right. then it moves into the court. Uh-oh. Right. The, uh, <laughs> the actual war. Yeah. Because Cedar Square West is what we know today as Riverside Plaza that got built. But then there was all these other the next part was River Bluff. This was going to be on the river. And right. there, there's a map on the story that shows the different phases. But that's what they're trying to block. Right? right. So Cedar Square West was just the first planned stage of a 10-stage idea. Mm-hmm. And River Bluff, which was going to be another 1,800, I think, units along the riverfront there mm-hmm. on the northern end of the neighborhood, was in the works to come up next by 1975. And they were also planning like a big commercial center in the right. middle. So. Right. You know, lots to come. And the opposition figured out that they hadn't really done an adequate environmental study. And so they took that to court and they said, you know, we want to stop this. And so a judge sided with them and said, "Okay, you need to redo this environmental study before we're going to let you continue to build anything else. So they came up with a new plan and then they got taken to court again for the same reason. Okay, And And so this all gets bogged down, basically. It gets bogged down. Between the earlier problems we talked about, but then also the lawsuits and things are just kind of going sour. Right. And on top of it, you've got it's the 70s. It's a Mm -hmm. tough economy with the oil crisis and recession. And And everybody's moving to the suburbs. And everybody's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, you got like Minneapolis is closing off Nicollet Avenue for Kmart in 74 or somewhere around there. I mean, it's right around the same time. There's a lot of kind of desperation. Yeah, uh, yeah. There were a lot of ideas. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so basically by 78, it's dead, essentially? Right, the, it's the, basically... The sort of further, dev- the, the further phases of it. Yeah, so there's this flurry of lawsuits and HUD blaming the city and the city blaming HUD and mm-hmm. the activists sort of, you know, with their own idea. And yeah, it just nothing really gets done. Mm-hmm. And eventually the city sort of withdraws its support yeah. and HUD eventually withdraws its support as well and says we're not going to continue with this. Okay, and Gloria leaves the organization... Siegel leaves the organization somewhere in this process. Yeah, in the mid-70s. And so I think she was really, you know, she had a hard time with it. It was something she believed in very strongly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her daughter, I talked to her daughter about it, who is a chief judge of the uh, Minnesota Court of Appeals today, Mm -hmm. Susan Susan Siegel. Siegel. Mm -hmm. Yep. But, you know, she picked herself up and moved on. She left Keith Heller to kind of continue. And CRA, kind of as it was known, right. ended up sort of coming to its demise right. as well. And Gloria Siegel became a state representative. So yeah, it wasn't so like, she, 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 ended she ended up, up doing some things. She ended up doing something. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And she did that for a decade and championed a lot of mental health legislation. Right. Okay. And people who are interested in strange architecture should go and visit Palmer's Bar... Well, I don't know by, what I mean by strange bar architecture, but you can see the stub of the pedestrian bridge that was supposed to link this up with everything else. And it's you don't really know what it is until you hear about this and you go look at it. But it's unbelievable. So that's really the physical representation of right. where this did not go. Right. right. Nope. Exactly. And so it is this little stub of a walkway that and it did for years afterwards. It still crossed Cedar Avenue and it ended up on the other side of the street. Right. And some people really liked it because it was good for like wheelchair users. Oh, so it did go across the street. At it one did. Point. Go across the street. Okay. Yep, and it was going to connect to what would have been called Cedar Square East. Okay, um, but now you can sort of see it like in the patio area of Palmer's or something. Yeah, like they that. kind of right. It kind of goes over this awkward corner of the bar, but it did at one point. Now it does not. Now it's just this stub, and they ended up, you know, kind of closing it off because it wasn't really right. safe to be on. Okay. Does the federal government ultimately sort of come down on this whole thing? Yeah, so the federal government ends up starting to take some of its land back, starts to foreclose on the land in the late 70s, not Cedar Square West itself, but future plots. Mm -hmm. And then by 1984, they finally come for Cedar Square West itself after sort of years of financial trouble and mismanagement. The federal government is in, you know, $35 million on this at this point, and they just want to get some of that money back. Okay. And there's sort of a happy epilogue to this, which is that we know this is a pretty sort of thriving East African community today. So, you know, just as we talked about this being an immigrant neighborhood, they really embraced this complex. When did that all happen? So 1988 is when it was sold to these developers that still own it today, Mm -hmm. uh, renamed Riverside Plaza, and they start putting some money into it to try to revitalize it. Somalia has a war starting in the mid-90s, and for various reasons, we start growing a large Somali community. Here. Which we've done another podcast on. But oh, anyway, yeah. There you go. So, and they end up, a, a large group of them end up sort of in that area of Minneapolis on both sides of the freeway there. And Riverside Plaza, which had been home to some other immigrant communities, including a large Vietnamese community in the 70s and 80s, starts to become the hub for this East African community. Um, and today it's about 80% Somali. Wow. Also people from Ethiopia, Eritrea, mm-hmm. and uh, you know a few other spots. But it's a huge sort of icon right. for this community. And then obviously Cedar Avenue has become a business district for the Somali community as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Such a fascinating history. There's a lot baked into those buildings we see as we're either walking or driving or biking around. It's hard not to notice them. Uh, the panels are one of the most recognizable parts of the building. Uh, there's a little story behind that, right? Yeah. So yeah. What, what's the deal with these panels? They're definitely, uh, I mean, today they are 
as we said, jauntily colored uh -huh. uh, in primary colors, red, yellow, and blue. Originally, the idea that Ralph Rapps and the architect had was to leave them blank so that people living in the towers could decorate them as they pleased. Mm, and that sounds a little chaotic. Create, you know, create an art project. <laughs> the federal government agreed with you, yeah. and uh, the federal government, which you know was backing this, said, "Yeah, we don't, you know." Anti-war messages, obscenities, mm. we're afraid of what these could say right. and, you know, uh, art be damned to some degree. And yeah. so they uh, they reached a compromise, which is to say we're going to have these panels, but we're going to paint them some right. colors. And, and, you know, arguably it, that helped make these buildings so much more iconic because right. even myself as a small child, I mean, that's what I remember driving sure. past there as a little kid. Yeah. Well, Eileen, thank you so much. This is fascinating. What a great history, and uh, thanks for putting it together for us. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, that's it for today's episode. Do you have feedback about this show or a question you'd like to see us tackle at Curious Minnesota? Send us a note at curious at startribune.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our show is recorded at the Star Tribune's headquarters in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. And our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious. <laughs>